Let me start with a pretty uh, serious question. Can I do this? The question is, what is the essence of true religion? What is a good religion? How do you measure it? His book, uh, Bad Religion, the New York Times columnist Ross DeFott says that America uh, is as religious as it ever has been, even as Christian as we ever have been. Our problem is not that we are less Christian, it's that the version of Christianity is not the same that it used to be. He says our problem is not that we have no religion, it's that we have bad religion because our religion is detached from orthodoxy. It lacks the balance that good, solid religion has. So it tends to favor certain strands of Christian ideas like freedom, but it does not favor other ones like discipline and restraint. Our problem, then, he says, is not that we need reformation or even revival. He's Catholic. (laughs) You'd expect him to say this. He said our problem is that we need true religion. Now, what is it though? As I read this passage, this has been, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. I wrestled with it earlier this week when I was in New Jersey. And, and this is the message that I think I'm to bring to you this morning. The measure of true religion is what it does to you. It's the kind of person that it's making you into. It's not just a series of beliefs. It isn't just orthodoxy. It's not, are you believing all the right stuff? It's what kind of person are you actually becoming after all of these beliefs? All three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this conversation, this seminal conversation between Jesus And one of the scholars, we often think teachers of the law were Pharisees. They were not. They were scholars in Old Testament literature. So this is a series of conversations with scholars in his day. And in this one, the man wants to know of all the commandments, which is the most important. There's a few things that strike me about this. Let me point them out. The first thing is that the man's question is theological or philosophical in nature, but Jesus' answer is is ethical. By the difference, I simply mean this. Theology has to do with what is true, and ethics have to do with what is good. Theology summarizes our beliefs, and ethics summarizes our virtues, how we actually behave. And the question seems to be pulling in the direction of what is true and what is right. If this conversation is like any of the previous conversations that Jesus has had, then this is clearly the direction he's going in. Let me prove it. This is in fact the fourth question that people have 
come to Jesus with in just the last chapter and a half. Let me back up. I'll put the last three on the screen really fast. The first question came in chapter 11, verse 27, where one of the teachers said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus' response was, well, John's baptism, did that come from heaven or did it come from men? They thought about it and there were political ramifications. So they looked at Jesus and said, well, we don't know. He said, then neither am I telling you by what authority I'll do these things. <laughs> Holy cow. Can you imagine standing before the district board of ministerial development with that answer? <laughs> wow. The second question comes in chapter 12 where another person says to him, teacher, we know that you are a man of great integrity. Look out because it's, it's going to be a sucker punch. So the next thing he says is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? This was a hotly debated subject in Jesus' day. Both sides arguing for it. Jesus says, hand me a coin. Whose picture's on it? They said, Caesar's. He said, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar and give to God's that which is God's. <laughs> one of those and they were amazed at the answer the third question was even harder one of the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection came to Jesus and they said you know hey suppose a guy has a wife and and she doesn't have any children yet and he dies now according to Moses She's supposed to marry his brother so she can have children with the family's name. Well, suppose the second husband dies and so does the third and so does the fourth. <laughs> suppose that this woman burns through seven husbands and still doesn't have any children. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? <laughs> Jesus' answer is... Now, these are scholars that he's talking to. He says, you err because you do not know the scriptures. <laughs> it's like telling a genius he doesn't know his times tables. He says, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You are badly mistaken. Now there's a firmness in his voice. My point in going over the last three debates is to point out that all three of them are theological in nature. They are not ethical in nature. The question is about what is right and what is true. So if the fourth question of all the commandments, which is the most important, is like the previous three then it's probably a theological question. That means that the guy who comes to Jesus already has an answer in his mind as to what he thinks is right. So Jesus says the right answer is to love God with all of your heart and your soul in your mind and it is to love other people in the same way that you love yourself 
You see, what struck me is that love is not a theology. It is an ethic. It's not a right answer. It is an instinct. It's the way to live. Let me translate this for you. What makes you smarter doesn't always make you kind. Sometimes it makes you argumentative. And the value of the Christian faith is not only how it fills your head. Gosh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if we've communicated that to you. Starting with me, I'm sorry if in the past I have led with so much intellect that I've led you to believe somehow that becoming a better Christian was learning more and more stuff. That is not the way, people. The way is to change our heart until we become people of love. Helmut Felix, in his thin little book called I think it's called Little Exercises for Young Theologians. <clears throat> like 40 pages. Shouldn't have cost as much as it did. <laughs> but he says, my plea to you young theologians is simply this. Every new theological idea that you have, you must consider it a challenge to your faith. Now listen to the next line. Whatever you do, you must not assume that you naturally believe everything that you love theologically. You must not assume that everything that enlightens your mind, you have. And at the end of the day, it is not how much you know, it is what you are actually becoming in the process. I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago. I was on the road and he was talking about some really smart guy. And, he, and I love smart people. I do. I just, I'm attracted to them. I just love smart people. I try to fake it, you know, as much as I can. And he was talking about how this person's pursuit of knowledge and expertise and their focus in life had made them socially unaware and how they'd lost their kind of whereabouts, their presence. They didn't know how they were coming across when other people were in the room. They were edgy and they were kind of crotchety because they were just so focused. And I couldn't resist. I, I couldn't shut up. And finally I said, yeah, but at the end of the day, Jesus was the smartest guy in the room and he was kind. Somehow, his pursuit of knowledge and theology and philosophy did not perjure his heart. Move on, Steve. I'm moving. The second thing that intrigues me about this is that the man asks for one commandment and Jesus gave him two. So far as we know, there were other teachers who cited the first and second commandment together, but according to Morna Hooker, almost none of them preceded Jesus. Most of the others who put these two together came after Jesus. So what Jesus does here is pretty novel. 
In fact, what he says in Matthew is even better. He, he, he says, look, look, put up the Matthew passage a second. Can you? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the greatest commandment. Now wait for it. And the second is like unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That phrase intrigues me, like unto. The second is like unto the first. What the word literally means is that they are connected. The root word hamas here means that they share the same space at the same time. Jesus used the phrase when he talked about parables. You remember him saying frequently, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who builds a tower or a farmer who sows seed. And what he's saying here is, if you want to understand the kingdom of heaven, you can go through this story that I'm telling you because the story is like the kingdom and the kingdom is like the story. The way into the kingdom is the story and the way to understand the story is to get into the kingdom. They're not interchangeable, but they're they are interconnected. Why am I going into this? Because what Jesus is saying is there are in fact two commandments, not one, and the second is like the first one. In other words, if you want to understand the first one, you have to understand the second, and if you want to understand the second, you have to understand the first. So I think what he's saying is you cannot delude yourself into thinking that you love God, but you're working on loving people. Yeah, but I do love God. It's just people I can't stand. <laughs> At least certain kinds of people. But if I hear Jesus, what he's saying is, if you want to get into the love of God, you have to go through the love of people. You cannot say that you love God to a 10 and you love people to a three. In fact, you only love God to the degree that you love other people. The rest is a delusion. You only think you love God. The way you discern how much you love God is how much you love people for people teach you to love God. They're not detached. I gotta dial this down, man. It's a good thing my wife ain't here, man. Getting this. So then the question is, 
right? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? See, the passage comes out of Leviticus 19. It's a mosaic law. And Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you read Leviticus 19, the context there is that the neighbor is clearly another Jew. It's another law abider. It's another one like you. It's one in whose company you prefer to be. Your friends, one of similar faith. It's one of those people. But in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus and the scholars square off, the scholar says, well then, who is my neighbor? And you can almost see a smile in his face because rabbis in those days debated this question forever too. Scholars like to do this. And every time they got to the neighbor question, the rabbi would dial it back. Well, (laughs) not them. Them. And you know what Jesus' answer in Luke 10 is? Your neighbor, he says, is a Samaritan. And you're a Jew. You hate Samaritans, don't you? That's too strong of talk. Delete, delete, delete. You have preconceived ideas about... Samaritans were the people that your daddy taught you to look out for, aren't they? Samaritans are the people that have had a long-standing dispute with Jews. You know the history, man. They scattered bones in your sanctuary. You know what we do with people like that. The truth is, every one of us have a different list of Samaritans. It's, for some of you, it's just, it's just people of different ethnicity. I mean, this is shocking. I get that because that is so, I mean, such an unforgivable sin today as it should be. But some of us are still caught, but not all of us. Every one of us have boundaries that protect us from Samaritans. And what Jesus' answer is, your neighbor is the person that you try to avoid. So let me get this right. The purpose of religion is to change the nature of a person, not just to make them smarter. And the the core of my religion is two principles, not one. And the way into loving God is loving others, and the way to love others is to really love God. And the others that I'm supposed to love (laughs) includes people that I just can't stand. This is hard stuff, you guys. 
Some of you are like, yeah, okay, I'm tracking, tracking, move on, move on. I don't care if you're tracking. I'm asking you, are we doing this? That's point one. (laughs) Is this actually our ethic? Tell me what you understand. We all get this. Are we actually living in this way, church? This leads to the third thing. And then, uh, yeah, the third thing. Huh. Someone noted that this conversation takes place in the temple. <laughs> in the temple is a series of rings that, that go from people who are least holy to those who were most holy. So if you were to chop our church up so it was like a temple, you'd say that, that people who are not members are out there under the canopy. And then only the members can come through the doors. And then only the core members can come into the rooms. And then only the pastors can be on the platform. And then only one pastor can approach the altar. Where's the altar? Oh, it's here today. Only one pastor can get to the altar. Now here's the key. The way that you move from the outside to the inside of a temple is through a series of rituals and liturgies. That's how you do it. You bring your sacrifices and you present them and that makes you available to go to the next layer. Are you tracking? So that this conversation happens in the temple gives new meaning to the teacher's response when he says, oh, you're right, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself, wait for it, is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he is doing is he is standing somewhere in the court of the Jews. He's a long ways away from the center of that temple and he's recognizing that the way you get to the center is not just through sacrifices and burnt offerings, it is through a changed heart and a changed nature. And the beauty of this is you don't have to be anything but genuine to do that. You don't have to be a certain kind of person. You don't gotta do it right. You don't have to have the right liturgy and did I say it right? You don't have to do any of that crap. You just have to have a genuinely changed heart. So you love God to the bottom of your heart and you genuinely love other people. You you instinctively care for somebody else's children like you care for yours. You come to church and you worry about somebody else's seat, then you worry about your own. So what's this got to do with our church? You don't know? Let me break it down for you. How powerful would it be 
If a church, a whole congregation, learned to do both commandments at the same time, can you imagine? What would happen if the people in our city truly believed that the people in our church love the city as much as they love God? Let me flip it. What if they truly believed that we loved God as much as we love other people? What would it do to our outreach in evangelism and our community development if we immersed it in the first commandment and we said to them the purpose of evangelism is not simply to reconcile sinners to God, it is to make people deep lovers of God. What if the purpose of an evangelist was not just to win people, it was to, it was to teach them how to love with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we even know evangelists today who can do that? And what would it do to our spiritual formation, to our discipleship ministries, is suddenly the focus became not only on teaching people how to be better students of God, but to teach them how to be deep lovers of other people. What would change if we started with relationships as the way into God. Instead of starting with God as if he were a body of knowledge. Seriously? I'm not trying to kick over a hornet's nest here. But I've thought about this for our church this week. And as I thought about it, it seemed to me that the question of God, how do we become more devout? We love God and more compassionate. We love others. How do we balance those? And it, it called to mind a couple of core values that we have in our church. One of those values is called belonging, and the other one is called including. When we talk about belonging, we're simply saying that we want people to be part of a community that is their community. We want this to be your church. We want your best friends to come from College Church. So part of belonging is commitment. Part of it is speaking into something while it's happening, not just waiting to see what they decide, and then living graciously with whatever the body has decided. So anything like small groups, 
and mission teams and sports teams and worship teams and boards and committees. These are all small versions trying to break down a congregation so people can learn to know each other's lives. And then as a unit, they can pursue the heart of God. That's the purpose of belonging. Otherwise, this is just the place you come. Like a sports game or like, in, like a Tigers game. You come and sleep. But the other one is called including. And by including, we're talking about hospitality and openness to people who don't feel like they belong. Now, it seems like these two things, belonging and including, pull against each other so that the better you get at belonging, the more you get clickish and the harder it is to include. But then if all you do is include, you start losing your center and you don't really know what you just got included in. So it seems like they're pulling in opposite directions. And it seems like some churches struggle with belonging, but they're really good at including. And so they're really strong at becoming multi-generational and multi-ethnic and multi-socioeconomic and multi-whatever else you are. They're really good at that. But but the problem is, when you move into that organization, you never know really what you're belonging to. There's not one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. So at the end of the day, while everyone can get into that organization, the organization is never as large as your individual identity. Your ethnicity, or your gender, or your income becomes the most important subject of the day. It's all we think about. Our church, I think, struggles with the other one. And I wonder if this is not a time in our church to emphasize including. I think we've done really good over the last few years of making small groups of... of um, of a sense of devotion and here's what it means to love God. But I think we're still learning how to open ourselves up so that people feel like they can belong here. And I'm starting to wonder if the real purpose of including is belonging. The reason we're letting y'all in is so you can move to the center and lead things. And I'm wondering if the reason for belonging is actually including that once you are inside of the congregation, the body will transform you as you move to the center. See, this is why membership for me is not a big issue. I don't struggle with this at all. I think you can argue, we'll argue afterwards, I'll listen. Um, I can't talk, I'll listen. But I, I mean, we don't have to keep membership outside of the inner core anymore. 
if a person has to be clean before he can join the body, he don't need us. You understand, the body is the washing machine where members bump up against one another in real life and the word of God is applied and as life hits life, it knocks the dirt off. That's one of the things strong bodies do. They don't just protect themselves with a fear of what they might become if those people get in. So I don't worry about this. We are the washing machine. We are not the clothes basket where everything is pressed and folded and ready to go upstairs. So what we need now are people who can help those who are trying to get in. Yeah, one last story, then I'm done. Uh, about eight years ago, uh, Lori and I went down to uh, Florida with uh, a couple of our friends in the church, Gary and Connie Ott. They have a place down in Florida. They said, let's spend three, four days down there just hanging out on the Gulf. And uh, what they didn't tell us was that uh, when we got down there, Gary was going to inspect one of his facilities. He's building, he's built a facility down there and he wanted to look at it. And then they didn't tell us when we got down there that we were gonna go over and see Larry and Anita Maxwell. Now, you don't know who they are. That's John Maxwell's brother. Now, the dude is in real estate and he owns half of Florida. Bush Gardens, dude owns it. Dude owns so much stuff, I'm making this up. He eats in restaurants, and when he wants to compliment the owner for the food, the lady at the front says, well, you're the owner. He's like, oh, I didn't know I owned this too. So the problem is that we don't have the right clothes. I've only brought shorts and blue jeans, cheap blue jeans, Levi blue jeans, men's blue jeans, I might say. So we stop at a mall so Lori can buy some dress slacks. She says, honey, don't you want to get dress slacks? I says, no, I'm going in my jeans. <laughs> I love it. I love a man with values right there. And the other problem is that the car that Gary keeps in Florida is a beat-up, old, run-down, rusty piece of junk. So I found something like it. And let's see if we can get it on the screen. Yeah, this. Now, his, his car isn't exactly like this. His is black, but it's this bad. And I say, Carrie, why don't you invest in a nicer car? And he says, because I only use it a couple weeks out of the year. 
So we go driving to the Maxwell's house in the Clampett family's vehicle. In their house, you have to picture a Hollywood brick drive that goes long, halfway back, there's a huge fountain, the drive splits like that, and then it goes back all the way to the mansion, and I mean mansion, and when you get inside, he, he works with Sotheby's, I'm not making this up, he gets original portraits and vases and things, and he puts them in his house, and he takes me in his office, and he's got genuine collection from Civil War guns and C.S. Lewis autograph letters. He has a 1611 copy of the King James Version. He goes, there's 40 copies in the world, and here's one. And I'm stunned by this. But we're driving up in this beat-up jalopy wearing jeans. Then he says, I want to go out to eat. I'm like, how about Culver's? <laughs> he goes, no, I'm going to take you to one of my country clubs. No, yeah, you'll love it. I said, no, I'm sure they won't like me. So we pull up in the country club and we go to get out of the car. And he says, let me go first. I'll tell them I know you. <laughs> he said, if they see your blue jeans, they won't let you in. I said, can't be that big of a deal. It's only one night. He said, Steve, last week, we had a world-renowned chef come through the region and he stopped to see us wearing blue jeans and he didn't have a jacket and they wouldn't let him in. I'll vouch for you. So we go to the front and the guy stops us. Larry goes, they're with me. I own it. All right. And in we go. And we sit down at the table. There's about 20 people there now. Sit down at the table. And Larry and John's dad, Melvin Maxwell, he's an old holiness preacher, wears a suit and tie when he mows the grass, I think. <laughs> and he's sitting at the end of the table. And Larry gets up and says, Dad, I want, you to, I want you to see one of the guys that I listen to. This is Reverend Deneff. He's the pastor of College Church. <laughs> you see Melvin go. How are you? <laughs> Gary said, I don't think he's too fond of your outfit. I said, my outfit? Look at your Bronco. <laughs> we got through the night. We got in the car. We started laughing, telling these stories all the way back. And this week, as I was thinking about this problem with belonging and including I'm thinking what we need are people like Larry who have the nerve to say to people who want to get into our church, stay with me. I own this place. I belong here. These are my people. I can get you through every checkpoint, everything that you're afraid of. 
Stay with me. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter what your marital status is. It doesn't matter whether you have a degree or not. It doesn't matter who you know or who doesn't know you. Stay with me. So here's how we do that. Real simple. One, you can begin asking people in your life, in your circle, people that you know to come with you to college church. See, some of you maybe have already decided, well, I don't think they'd be comfortable here. Well, dude, if you think that, how much more do they think that? So you can just start by saying, you know, have you ever considered, if you don't go anywhere, have you ever considered, don't take people from other churches. We want them to grow too. If they don't fit here, send them there. But give people the opportunity to attend one of our services because I believe the body will go to work on people. I really do. I think if they stay here for a long time, they'll change. Second thing you can do is start taking responsibility for a few people, not 15 or even 10. Just find three or four people in our church that are invisible most of the time. So think first about elderly people or people that come from South Marion area and they're trying to get into our church and they're not sure how they're gonna fit, you'll notice them when, they, when you see them hugging the wall in the atrium. They're not necessarily introverts. They're still trying to check us out. So we have to make the initiative to go over and so look for them. Write their names down and say, I'm gonna, every week, I'm gonna find out whether they're here or not, and if they're here, I'm gonna make sure that they feel welcome and that they are well cared for. I asked a lady in our church, lives in South Marion. She's been coming three or four years. I said, how many friends do you have at College Church? She said, lots. I said, um, if you were to put College Church in a series of rings, what ring would you say you were in? She said, oh, I think I'm pretty close to the center ring. I said, really? Well, how many friends, when you come to see them, you talk to them every Sunday. She said, oh, probably five or six of them. I said, that's not bad. Last question. When you get here, do you look for them or do they look for you? She said, oh, I always look for them. Why do you ask? I said, no reason. That was a lie. There was a reason. I want to know who's looking for her. That's what I want to know. Because our tendency, the older we get and the smarter we get, is to become kind of back up like this and say, the right people will find me. Yeah, well, see, I just spent 30 minutes talking about how the wrong people are actually the ones who need. So that means we are going to have to flip it and become more aggressive in this way, church. Are you still with me? Last thing. Eric and uh, Ethan have put together a card. It's in your pew right here. And they're putting together a group of uh, a series of groups um, in our church. And they're saying, boy, here's one way to belong if you don't feel like you belong. You can join a group that already exists. So if you're not in a small group, even if you come every Sunday and you volunteer, you might still feel like you don't belong. 
And the reason is because you're not yet in a group smaller than the morning worship service. So one way to do that is to join a group that already exists, simply check the box, put your name on it, and they will contact you this week. The other way, if you want to include, go out there now, is to start a group of your own, and then you can invite all of the people that you think don't belong. So you don't have to say, well, that church down there. No, you start your own group. Do your own. And what they've done is they've come up with stuff that can, they can put in your hands really fast, right? And empower you so you can lead your own, you can lead it or somebody else can lead it. We'll find that too. But start one if you don't feel like you've found one. So you'll check that box, put your name on it, and they'll contact you this week. Well, church, thanks for uh, hanging in there with this. Thanks for uh, all the distractions that you've put up with and the incoherent thoughts and the sudden jumps. But it seems to me like God has a message for us today. And the message is that our religion is making us fundamentally different, better people. And that's the religion that we want to belong to. If in the last 30 minutes or so you found yourself saying, man, you know, that's a very good point. God is speaking to me on that point. Either I'm gonna ask someone, Steve, I'm gonna ask someone if they'll come to our church and just start attending with me. Or maybe you've said, Steve, I'm gonna find three or four names and I'm gonna focus. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you just signed a card. Would you join me by standing to the floor. I want to pray a prayer of consecration over us. Lord, wow. Oh, I thank you so much for the people that you're calling out to make our church more open and pour us to the public. Oh, I pray that you would, even accidental conversations, turn into divine encounters where the doors of your church would open itself to our public. Oh, Lord, make us even more a transforming church that cleanses those who have begun to come. Start with us, change our nature, make us better people with an ethic of love and spread that like a virus all across our body and our city. Those that are standing with me this morning, I consecrate to you in the name of God, our Father and Christ, our brother and the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's in your name we pray and God's people said, amen.